0: Welcome to the New Street X Podcast. Today we have a very special guest by the name of Bobby Axelrod. Yes, that Bobby Axelrod. Actually, it is a pseudonymous Bobby Axelrod who moonlights as an NFT trader and collector while maintaining his day job at a hedge fund. And this Bobby Axelrod character has been deep in the NFT space for a while,'s been deep in crypto for a while. He's got some really interesting insight around the space that. Not many people have, and we're excited to talk to him about his journey, actually, as a collector and what he's interested in now in the NFT space, crypto more broadly, and just the the crazy world of alternative assets and investments that we're getting into these days. So, Bobby, thank you for that wonderful introduction.
1: I think that's a pretty tough introduction to follow up on. That uh, got a lot of stuff there, but yeah, I, uh, Bobby Axelrod, I'm using that pseudonym for protecting my uh, main career where I'm uh, actually a hedge fund portfolio manager. Uh, I won't, not at Axe Capital, but that's where I drew, the, uh, drew the inspiration from. And,
0: and also just so I, in case it's not obvious, in case of people in the audience who know, Bobby Axe is the main character in Billions.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: A TV series, pretty much only the,
1: I would say like one of the only well-known hedge fund people that I thought I could come up with as I was trying to figure out a pseudonym. Essentially, I've been... Uh, you know, on the side, since I was in, in, in high school, I've been involved in the, the crypto space. And as time went on in my career at this particular hedge fund, I was looking for something on the side to express my, my interest, not only in, in crypto, but basically we're not allowed to trade at all in the stock market on the side. And I needed something to not only satisfy my edge to have exposure in, in, in different markets, but something to really express myself. and. Um, I've kind of found that in crypto and in, in, in NFTs. And yeah, that's, that's how I ended up here.
0: When did you first start getting into crypto slash NFTs? Like how long have you been? And just so people get a sense of like what it means for you to be an NFT trader collector. Like, Does that mean you, you like have a huge collection of NFTs? Do you like flip them and like buy them and flip them so you don't actually have that many? And how did you first get into like discover what an NFT was. I guess all those questions can lead down different paths. So feel free to tackle any of them or one of them. Yeah.
1: So I'll start with how I, how I got into crypto. In 2010, it was coming you know, right out of the financial crisis. I was, in, I was a freshman in high school. I was pretty you know, interested in, in what was going on with a very you know, naive brain of why are my parents so stressed every night I'm coming home? And I was... Playing a lot of World of Warcraft at the time, and I was in this guild with a couple of older older folks, and the guild was kind of focused on basically trading the in-game currency of World of Warcraft. And as I was trying to learn from these these couple of older older characters that I, I was uh, you know flipping in-game World of Warcraft items with, you know, they directed me to Reddit for the first time in one of the early crypto subreddits, and I saw the satoshi nakamoto's paper which i you know at the time didn't really understand any of it but the concept of internet money at a time where i was trying to basically sell in-game world of warcraft currency and being very unsuccessful of actually translating that to to real in-game currency really appealed to me and i started you know taking my little gaming computer i'd made to to play world of warcraft to mine bitcoin back in the summer of 2010 and ever since then the kind of concept of one having you know sovereignty online over your currency and and, and kind of your own wealth in the online world, but also this idea of these communities online that you were uh, involved with that kind of reminded me of these initial gaming communities that I was a part of. It really was just a good match for me and it, it took off from there. And that slowly evolved into, okay, I'm pretty interested into the cryptocurrencies, which are you know obviously where a lot of the talent is in the space right now, but wasn't Really where I felt like I felt my community. And, and then in, earlier this year, one of my friends had convinced me to get involved in Top Shot because we you know, grew up. I wasn't as good of a, I would say, a baseball and basketball card collector as a couple of my friends were. But I was playing Yu-Gi-Oh! tournaments co- competitively. So I was collecting some of those Yu-Gi-Oh! cards. And I still remember having my you know, binder full of those very neatly organized Pokemon cards. And the TopShot experience was about as close to that uh, as I could get. So when the TopShot market blew up, I needed something to really satisfy that, satisfy the urge I was getting from March through, through May of being online and buying TopShot cards. So I slowly started to learn more and more about, you know, the Ethereum NFT market and got online and got into a bunch of discords. Uh, primarily started with like the, there's this one discord community called one, where a lot of uh, you know, NFT influencers now have kind of started out their career. And yeah, that's been my journey since then. And now it's like, uh, you know, I have, a, I have a, I wouldn't say I have a huge bag or a huge collection. I've got some nice things that I'm proud of, a couple of things that I got hanging up on the walls of my apartment right now. <laughs> but I uh, have, have been quite active, especially during the summer and, and actually trading and, and, and flipping the NFTs themselves.
0: And if I understood correctly, you did not buy a single NFT until this year, starting off with NBA Top Shot. But for the past few years, you've obviously been deeply involved with the crypto space, or at least as a side project, hobby, hustle, since 2010. But NFT specifically was something that you just really got into. I mean, just as, as is the case, because the whole world didn't really deeply get into it till this year. But it, it all started this year, it sounds like, with NBA Top Shot.
1: Yeah, it all started this year with NBA Top Shot. You know, I'd gotten convinced to buy some decentraland land, so technically, my this was not when was that? So uh, decentraland is like this on um, it's an online uh, kind of expression of the metaverse. It's it's the uh, really the the only uh, sort of decentralized online metaverse that that really exists that's working and and that you could actually you know download or go on in your browser and actually go there. Basically, looks like someone that, that uh you know copied the code from minecraft and it kind of created their own (laughs) expression of minecraft but the way that that game took uh usage of of nfts in in late 2017 early 2018 was you could actually buy plots of land and there's about you know 60,000 plots of land in this game and what you know this land literally is is it's a uh it's an nft that says kind of like a deed to a house it says you know x wallet is the owner of this piece of land and when I bought it, there, there really wasn't any game yet. You're just kind of paying money for what seemed like a good idea. You know, land's a good investment in the real world, so I thought maybe in the, <laughs> in, the, in the metaverse, land would be a good investment too. And it's turned out to be probably one of the better trades that I've ever made in my life.
0: <laughs> so Wait, the central land, so it started in 2017, 2018, right? And, and these actual plots of land, these were ERC-721 tokens?
1: Right. They, they started out as, as ERC-721 tokens, and those tokens actually, you know, that you know, have the coordinates for where your your land is on relative on the map. They they act as like a basically a deed that says this wild owns that. And if you have that, then you know you can develop the land and rent it out. And at first, when people were you know saying this in twenty eighteen, like oh you're going to be able to you know rent out your land, you're going to be able to to sell the deed, and it didn't sound real. And, and and now today, you know people are you know renting out their land to use as galleries, renting them out to to you know other online communities to, to use them to, you know, host parties and, and, and Travis Scott, for example, has like had like an online, you know, festival over in Decentraland and, and, you know, it's not perfect, but it's kind of the first expression of, of what the metaverse is going to look like. And so, yeah, that was my, my first, technically my first NFT investment, but from more of like the art and collection type experience that didn't really start with top shot. So that's that's a very long-winded way of answering
0: here. <laughs> well this is great. Cause also I feel like maybe like in a in a bit we should talk about the different variations on the virtual worlds like sandbox versus the central end versus um crypto voxels, etc. But maybe like before we because there's so many topical NFT things I want to talk to you about. But young Bobby Axelrod. So you mentioned being a Pokemon slash Yu-Gi-Oh, a professional. We played in Yu-Gi-Oh tournaments. I played some Yu-Gi-Oh tournaments. I was, you know, collecting Pokemon cards, mainly
1: because my mom would would be like, you know, she wouldn't say Bobby because I didn't have that pseudonym at the time. But she was instilled on me that maybe these things
0: could be worth something. someday. you need to keep them clean. You need to keep them in the, in the binders. Can I just say that, like, your mother, Bobby, like Miss Axelrod Sr., is clearly a very prescient, sophisticated woman because so many people I've talked to, not just the podcast, but in general, tell the opposite story. It's like, oh, my mom threw away my Pokemon cards. And there's like probably, I lost tens of thousands of dollars there. Or like my mom thought it was stupid that I had was collecting this when I was a kid. So she just put my baseball cards in, in the trash. So it sounds like from the very beginning, you've been predisposed to have a collector mindset that came from your mother even. Yeah, like my, I mean, I really wish
1: I listened to her more. There's, There's really two things that, she kind of instilled on me then. One was to keep my Pokemon cards clean, keep them in the binders, and actually, I'm quite happy that that's the case because now my, you know, I've got a, an older sister who has a couple of kids, and one of them is just getting into Pokemon cards right now. So he's a cool kid on the block because he's got a couple of of pretty sweet Gen One cards because I, you know, saved them and I trust him. He's a good kid. He's he's careful with his stuff. So. You know, I've let him borrow my collection to kind of show off to people. And then the other thing that she really tried to get me to do was when I was first explaining to her about Bitcoin in 2010, she was like, you got to take a couple of them, put them somewhere and hold on to them. And on that one, I did not listen to her very well,
0: unfortunately. <laughs> first off, it sounds like your, your mother sounds like Satoshi Nakamoto, like from the sense of like, she, she's literally encouraging you to keep like, I couldn't think of something, like I don't think I've ever heard anyone's, tell a story about their mother encouraging them to get, to like, take in, buy some Bitcoin back in the day. Usually it's like, what's this scammy internet money, kid? Like, don't do that, you no, know? No, that was my dad. That was the main reason. And, okay, so there's, and there's a, a balance, com- balance in the, yeah, between mom and yeah.
1: dad. Yeah, and there's, uh, no, unfortunately, being a teenage boy, I was siding with my, you know, dad more often than I was siding with my mom. So my dad was the one telling me this scammy internet money that I remember, he was like, oh, what? This is worth $14 for each one of these, like, you should cash it now before it goes to zero, so I was selling a good chunk of them at you know fourteen dollars to pay for you know movie tickets and and, and buying food for forever girls and But my mom was like, no, you, you you never know like this thing could be the biggest thing ever you need to this could go to I remember her saying like this could go to ten thousand dollars like you should hold a couple of them on the side, and she still always you know I just saw my mom yesterday actually she came came up to visit me and see my new place I just moved and You know, one of the first things she asked was like, oh, you know, how's your Bitcoin doing? And little does she know that, unfortunately, along the road, I've been selling a a good chunk of them to, you know, and I'm I'm happy about doing so. But it's funny because I I agree with you. Every person I talk to always has some story about how their mom has screwed up their collection or screwed up
0: their... The opposite of you, literally. (laughs) uh,
1: Literally the exact opposite. Yeah. She's a fantastic, wonderful woman. I don't think she'll ever listen to this podcast. She doesn't know about my pseudonym and online identity, but... If she is listening, thanks, Mom. <laughs>
0: yeah. I aspire to have someone like Miss Axelrod in my life, considering the, the life advice she's been given you. Well, when it came to other types of cars as well, like, well, actually maybe, like how did you first get into the Pokemon Yu-Gi-Oh stuff? And then also, were you also collecting baseball, basketball? You said slightly less than your friends, but that was probably part of your hobby a little bit as well. I would mainly, you
1: know, we would go to, there's just one like kids-focused store in, in our town. Uh, it was called Zany Brainy. And they actually would have Yu-Gi-Oh cards and Pokemon cards there, but they didn't have any of the sports cards. And that's mainly where my mom would take me because you know it was like the trendy thing to take your kids to these these types of stores back then and and, and where I was growing up. So they didn't actually have any of the sports cards there. So I felt a bit of a disconnect when we would get on the bus, right? Uh, we get on the bus on the way home from elementary school and kids would be opening their basketball and baseball card packs. And, you know, it's real cool to get the jersey cards and You know, for me, I I just didn't have that. So I was begging my mom, could I please go, you know, next time could we go to like Target or something so I could actually get something that all the other kids were doing. So mainly like the the sports card packs were not something that I, you know, deeply connected to, even though I was someone that was, you know, playing a good amount of sports growing up and liked, I grew up in Philadelphia. So, you know, everyone there has a deep connection to all four of the Philadelphia sports teams, but it didn't really connect to me of collecting these cards, but the Pokemon cards, like, man, there's just something special about, you know, having, I had a, you know, my prized possession growing up and still one of them now is like a, you know, original Gen Zero uh, Blastoise holographic card. And that, that is, it's not a Charizard or anything. That's still a special card. And back then, back in the day, it was pretty sweet whipping out the binder and having one of those. But I think the one issue I had with Pokemon and why, you know, I wasn't deeply, deeply into to, into collecting them. Or made an intimate part about what I was doing was like people didn't really play the Pokemon game, like the, the card game. Whereas with Yu Gi Oh, it was man, like you could play and you could play with your friends and you could play, you know, like pink sheets like they were doing in the show and play for your best card. And uh, the fact that I could like literally, you know, be super proud of my uh, you know original Blue Eyes White Dragon card. And then to still use that thing to kick ass when I was playing. All my friends too was was freaking awesome. So it was really the the Yu Gi Oh. I just wish that it had the kind of same mainstream success. Not from like a monetary perspective, but just from a you know hanging out with some collectors. What I do, it's like no one really gives Yu Gi Oh any any credit at all. But uh, that was really the thing that I connected with the most, mainly from a competitive type type aspect.
0: And do you still collect Yu Gi Oh cards today? And also, I guess beyond that. I mean, actually, I, mean, I don't have any data to support this, but Yu-Gi-Oh! is still growing, right? As a, like, maybe not massively, but it's still a growing community, and I, I would imagine it just get bigger as time goes on, right? Yeah, they have, like, a, I think there's, like, an online, like, Yu-Gi-Oh!
1: type competitive game that, that is still growing, and I know the community, whenever I get to, to keep tabs on them, is I wouldn't say, I don't know, and I don't have that data, like you're saying, to support it, but I, I, I think it is, like, you know, they're still active. It's, it has not nearly experienced the same type of growth, at least from the collection perspective that, you know, Pokemon has over the last 24 months with Rare Candy and all that type of stuff, but it's still alive, I would say, and that's what's cool, but, but to, you know, answer your direct question, no, I, I haven't collected them. I, I still know where all my cards are, thanks to my mom, but um, and I don't plan on, you know, selling. They have such more sentimental value. And I'm hoping that I can kind of convince my nephews who are, you know, still into the Pokemon to try to pick up the Yu-Gi-Oh, at least from a competitive type, type perspective. Cause so I feel like it was pretty helpful in, in terms of keeping me sharp as a, as a little kid to be able to play Yu-Gi-Oh. But no, I, I think I, you know, had this gap in my life where I wasn't doing anything collection wise, probably in, in middle to high school. It's kind of filling that in with video games and then stop playing video games and then. Didn't really realize I was missing it until Top Shot came around. And that's really when I realized, Hey, I, I like collecting things. I kind of like the, both the the rarity and the scarcity of it. I like being in the community and man, there's nothing better feeling than when you, you know, rip open a, a Top Shot pack or just a a pack in general and you get something cool. I don't, I don't think there's really any better feeling, at least for, for me personally, than winning a drop or, or winning a pack. And in NFTs, winning a mint is, is and then for you know, those type of people, a mint is, is when you, you know, a lot of NFTs, when you go and buy them, they come out unrevealed, just like a pack. And when they do reveal, it's like a forced mechanism where every single person that invested in that NFT is basically opening up their packs at the first time. And getting something cool out of one of those is just, I don't think there's any better feeling in, in the world. I'll, I'll nail trade at work or I'll n- nail trade in the finance world. They'll be many times over more money than what's going on in that mint. And I will say that I definitely get a 10 times bigger adrenaline rush from waiting for something to reveal in the NFT world or waiting to open up one of those Top Shot packs. There's just something different about it. And that's really what kind of drew me to getting back in this type of collector type mindset and world.
0: It's interesting. I mean, I um, do you have the artifact Clone X. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I got, I had one.
1: I had one clone vial. Did you do the reveal? Did you mint it? No, I because of the you know I same reason why uh, people are still holding on to you know unopened packs. I think the I think the unopened vials are going to be a good long term long term investment.
0: I, I think what's interesting is that you're kind of drawing a parallel between a lot of things happening in cards and a lot of things happening in NFTs. I mean, Top Shot's like the most obvious example of like a like a NFT version, a digital version of like basketball cards, essentially, and the sort of reveal. I'm also thinking about you know, like box breaks and things like that. You know, People do these like box breaks on YouTube or the, the suspense and the drama that it's funny how like, the NFT world is drawing inspiration from the card world when it comes to that. NBA Top Shop being the most obvious example. But also as time goes on, like all these elements are coming together. NBA Top Shop also be the best example of that.
1: Right. Yeah. No. I, I, and I think, uh, I don't know if listeners of New will know, it, but this guy, Hunter Oral, who's a uh, Pretty big up and coming NFT. I wouldn't say influencer because or creator, but that's kind of what the NFT world is calling these folks are or, or like influencers. Uh, I think Hunter is more of a you know, just a sharp-minded individual who now has a big following in, in the space. who's launched a couple of his own projects and kind of had the exact same path as as me. Of, of he likes sports and he was missing this idea of a community and was a not so active collector, but had a sports card collection growing up and. Got sucked into the top shot and and then when that market was was not doing so well, um, he jumped over to the NFT world around the same time, and he's like quite you know being a thoughtful guy is pointing out the same thing of the NFT world is very good at, at osmosis of picking up you know what I think are like good qualities from crypto, obviously because that's what, it, what it's come out of, but also from the art world as well with you know we're just about a week removed from. Art Basel, which I think has turned into you know NFT Basil and also from the collectors' world as well. And that's I think what's really cool about NFTs is that it's a it's a nice evolution of kind of like what the all these different communities can be in what you know hopefully will be this you know decentralized online metaverse. But just in general, just linking all of these people together from across the world in a in a pretty efficient way, you end up just picking up all these different bits and pieces of of culture and. and from them. And yeah, I think it's a pretty astute point to point out that it is grabbing a lot of the, the same thing. So I will say one thing that I haven't seen people do as much of that uh, it is those types of box drops. Like I thought there would have been someone by now who would, you know, grab 100 clone vials and stream on Twitch of like, all right, getting ready for the. Oh, that's so
0: true. That seems like such an obvious thing to do. And you're right. I can't think of any version of that as happening.
1: It must be because, you know, it's a bit harder to grab. You know, $116,000 things. Like, <laughs> and that's what I think the, the you know, sometimes it's, you have to take a step back and, and, and just look at the sheer, you know, monetary value of, of some of these things that people are grabbing. Like, we're talking pretty casually about, about clone vials and, and, and how cool they are. But then when you take, and oh, God forbid if anyone's listening and tell me, you know, one ETH is one ETH and they shouldn't be thinking about things in USD, but all my expenses are in dollars, so I got to think about it. life in dollars. And yeah, it's like each one of those things is going for about $15,000 right now. So it'd be hard to do a box drop that would be $1.5 million where we say 100 clone files, but uh, I think it would help draw in people who aren't as uh, intimately involved in the space. And I would watch that stream. It sounds like it would be pretty cool, man. You're <laughs> just waiting to refresh the metadata to see what you end up getting.
0: <laughs> I mean, in a way, like you it, it should be even more appealing to watch, for people to watch a like a quote unquote NFT box break of more expensive items, right? Like it's inherently like I watched another thing. I I watched, you know when the Constitution Dow thing was happening and suddenly so you had the option. I actually ended up watching that live auction, like, on YouTube. Oh, yeah, same. Yeah. Yeah, and it was, like, actually pretty exciting. And, like, part of it's, like, the stakes, right? It's, like, it's not just a $10,000, like, item. They're talking about millions. And then, like, each incremental bid is in another million, adding another million. And and that's just, like, if you think about that applied to live streams, you know, someone auctioning off spaces in a box break for, like, $20 cards versus $20,000 NFTs, like, that is definitely another layer of intensity and probably entertainment value. Yeah. I think there's
1: great entertainment value in it. And I agree The kind of the one thing that I was drawing a parallel to was there was something like 50,000 unique YouTube viewers. like got to be the, or the, you know, the record for, I can't remember if it was Christie's or Sotheby's. I think it was Sotheby's. It's got to be the record for the most people they've had on one of their YouTube streams. Like I was actually going back and, and looking when I first kind of got in on the YouTube of like, how many views do these things have? Like, we're looking at like sub a thousand, but <laughs> there's 50,000 people in there. And, you know, it feels a bit of an echo chamber. And I was trying to remind some of my you know, friends that were in there. He was like, oh, I feel like every single person is just watching this right now. It's like, no, 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 no. Every person in the crypto Twitter NFT world is watching this right now. But, you know, we're <laughs> it's still not mainstream, but it was exhilarating. The stakes, you're just going up by a million. There's also a good, I think, 20, 25 minute period where I didn't know who was representing Constitution DAO at that point. So there's a lot of lot of lot of stress and a lot of stakes going on there. But I think it's interesting you bring that up. Like one thing that I think has a high potential to kind of link the two worlds even even closer in the in the future is these ideas of DAOs that are built as collecting real world items. So Constitution DAO is a DAO that was set up to buy the US Constitution. And after that, you've seen people Get together and pool Ethereum for non investment purposes <laughs> to purchase other stuff. Like uh, there's this one called Spice DAO that came out right afterwards that bought the original manuscripts for Dune. So I thought they came up with a pretty cool name for it. And they went out and they raised, I think, like $6 million and they were actually successful. Like they went out and, and actually got those manuscripts. So I think it's quite possible. I wouldn't even be surprised if it's like um, the guy I mentioned earlier and Hunter, but someone getting together and saying, all right, let's pull some Ethereum together, set up a DAO, and let's go buy a hundred Giannis rookie cards or something like
0: that. Oh, that makes complete sense. Actually. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I
1: think we're you know probably a couple of months away from that becoming mainstream.
0: Because I've heard of like a couple of DAOs that are that have been set up to like buy. I don't know if s I mean, if they had succeeded, we would have heard about it by now. But to buy like sports teams, one was to buy like a soccer team in the UK. I've heard of one trying to buy like I think like a basketball team in the US. So those are. I mean. I don't think either of those have accomplished their goal, or at least I haven't heard it. Yeah, but it's a matter of time until that becomes viable, potentially. But in the meantime, what is much more viable is us joining a DAO to buy, yeah, 100 Giannis cards, Luka cards, or whatever.
1: Right, right. Because there's, a, you know, the way that, that I'm thinking of those types of DAOs from a framework perspective is it's just, a, it's, it's like a poor man's LLC, but it's...
0: Poor man's LLC, I love it.
1: Yeah, those types of DAOs are like a poor man's LLC. You know, I, I have a vision of like you know DAOs will be these great types of organizational structures in, in the future, and there's already a couple of them in more in the you know DeFi crypto world, which I won't talk about here. That are you know operating in, in ways that are much different than traditional corporate structures, and are I think are successful in doing so. I would have said Sushi Swap is is my prime example of that. The price wise has not been doing so well over the last couple of months, but from an organizational perspective, it's it's incredibly decentralized in the sense like there's no CEO, there's no executive team. There's just a bunch of people put up proposals and have decided to work for them. And that's kind of one topic we talk about for hours at another time. But then there's this idea of a DAO's as if you want to set up like a man, I've got a friend who's very, very deep into the, the baseball card world. He's, he's got his own fun set up. He's, uh, you know, one of the only folks that will, you know, contract directly to with Mike Trout, and he's got a bunch of Mike Trout rookie cards. And he every year he gets a bunch of stuff signed by Mike Trout, and he's holding on to it. And he's he's incredibly successful before even this run up in 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 the baseball card world. But he was telling me about how difficult it was to set up his fund. And you know, you got to sign up through all the paperwork. You got to you know, KYC all of your clients. It's, it's it's really like the in the same way of setting up an actual hedge fund. Um, you got to go through all the legal stuff. And here in in the crypto world. You kind of just pool money together, uh, set up a wallet, and then boom, you get a website going and a Discord, and, and you're basically got this decentralized fund and skipped all the steps that you had to take to kind of, you know, set up an LLC, set up uh, all the legal documents, get your, you know, constitution or, or you know, principal documents in place. You just have a, a tacit agreement amongst friends, amongst internet friends, that we're going to use this money or use this Ethereum to buy real-world assets, and boom, you're ready to go, just like that. So that's why I think of those DAOs as kind of the poor man's LLC, because the, the, once you kind of think about it, and from that perspective, it significantly reduces the barrier to getting groups of people with like-minded interests to do and invest in, in like-minded things uh, so it only, I think, is a matter of time before you see people, you know, pulling Ethereum
0: online to then pull it out to then go buy <laughs> sports cards and then maybe even Pokemon cards. Well, I mean, you're already seeing funds put together. I mean, it sounds like your friend has one as well, but Alt, you know, invested. I think one of the recent like, I mean, I feel like card records are being broken every week, but there's like a record Steph Curry rookie card that was bought for, I don't know, whatever, x six million or something like that. But what was interesting is that it was bought by a fund, which was run by the company Alt, which is in the collectible space. And they bought like a percentage of it. So they like bought 51% or something like that of the Steph Curry card at valuation X. And so, so you think about there's there's like several layers to that. One layer is the fact that there is a fund that was pulled together that I think, I even if you read like the fund prospectus, whatever you call it, like... All the gains of the fund were based on just like one or two cards, which is great because they're like some of the most valuable, highest performing asset classes in the world for the last year. Yeah. Two, the fact that they bought a fraction of a Steph Curry card that like represents, you know, fractional ownership, which is something that is all possible. You just need to like make, like create infrastructure to make that more common because it's, it's not like everybody can do it right now. And then three, it just indicates how if this fund can do it, shouldn't all funds be able to do it? Shouldn't anybody who wants to invest, whether you're like a hedge fund, like your hedge fund maybe, or whether you're like mom and pop Dow, poor man's Dow, who wants to invest in, in cards. It's like the transition from cards being purely a hobby to an asset class.
1: Yeah, I think like to be an asset class, like my, my thinking is it has to be liquid. And to get that type of liquidity, especially in like the collector's market and the things that we're talking about in cards, like, You need that idea of fractional ownership. Otherwise, you know, if I have the Steph Curry card that is, I think it's valued at, let's say, $10 million, if the only way I can get liquidity is through actually going out basically contracting one of the auctions to go out and auction this thing off, you know, I can mark that in my portfolio whenever I want. But to truly, at least from a, you know, and this is my hedge fund mind speaking, like to truly consider that as something in in your portfolio that you can count on both from a you know, diversification perspective but also from a return perspective like it's got to be fairly it's got to be liquid like you have to be able to say that at the end of the day like the, the mark that I'm putting on this is a mark that I could trust because I go to the market and, and get the money for this until you have either a very liquid you know lending market like you do in the art world where you know in high art if I'm a, a curator or a collector I can go to a set of, of banks and dealers around the world and and just to put my art up as collateral and get a loan on it. it. Unless you have something like that where it's a it's basically liquid in the sense of, you know, I can't necessarily sell my Basquiat, but I could go and go to a, there's a market for me depositing my Basquiat and as collateral and getting money for it. Or I can, you know, sell it on a like a, you know, stock market type thing or I have fractional ownership. Unless you have one of those three things of fairly easily accessible liquidity, I don't think you can count it as an asset class. And what you've kind of seen with collectibles in general over the last 16 to 24 months of the emergence of fractional ownership, I think it you have to start taking these things seriously then. If there's a liquid market like it there is now, I mean, it hasn't been fully standardized yet, but there are... These fractional type ownerships like you can go and rally and go buy shares of these cards and it's also interesting that i think you can go and rally and buy shares in a board eight now too there's there's several you know on you know solutions that are out there for fractional ownership of nfts but the fact that the same platform is both offering you know fractional ownerships and cards but also in nfts i think speaks to the things we were talking about earlier about the close connection between the two And also the future of of collectibles as, as, and I wouldn't even say the future, the present of collectibles now as a legitimate um, private asset class.
0: Oh, and I also think like to add to that, one thing I also thought was really interesting is physical assets being fractionalized and then sold in the form of NFTs. So like Dibs is this company that's like fractional sports cards, trading company like Marketplace. They received a lot of press last week because Amazon just invested in them but the thing is, it's like you can fractionalize your cards, but tokenize them as NFTs. So if you want to give dibs your Steph Curry card, I could buy a share in that, not just as like a fractional like piece of paper, but like as an NFT. So like all these things, like this is one of the reasons why like at New Street we we think about the reason we cover sneakers, trading cards, and NFTs is because the differences between those two things, those three things, are becoming less and less every day, and uh, and differences even now, like today are even less than most people realize. But the point is, most people don't realize that, which is why our mission is to help educate and inform people about that. I mean, on that point, actually, I'm curious, you know, like, to the extent that you're able to talk about this, like, you know, working at a top hedge fund with some of the most advanced, presumably, like, investors in the world, people in the finance world, all this stuff we're talking about should be interesting to them. But we also know, like you mentioned earlier, maybe you and I live in kind of an echo chamber where, you know, the Clone X isn't necessarily known amongst all the folks who you're working with in your day job. Maybe they don't know Bordes. Maybe they do. Maybe they're skeptical. Maybe they love it. Super skeptical, I would say. <laughs> okay. okay, I'm curious because, I don't know, like intuitively, I feel like it could be anything. It could be anything, everything from like, it's very common amongst people working at hedge funds to, to like love it, or NFTs, or like they don't even know about it. Maybe they think it's rat poison. as Warren Buffett called Bitcoin? What's your take based on your personal experience living in both of these worlds? Yeah, I think what's interesting
1: is that as I've gone more active, people have started to kind of find out, not directly, but yeah, you know, if you come to my apartment, we got you know the board ape on the wall. That's a nice metal printed. We got the our mutant that is a pretty good one that's on the wall. So you you get a sense, you get an idea. And the thing is, I, I would say most high finance people that I've met are deeply, deeply skeptical in the same way that they were deeply skeptical of the art market. They were deeply skeptical of the wine market. They're deeply skeptical of pretty much anything that's not a liquid, tradable asset class that's generally recognized by the world. And I think that's totally fine. If you look at an adopter curve, you know, there are people that are on the left side and there are people that are in the middle. And what's surprising and is that I would say that most of the, you know, f- hedge fund and finance people that I associate with are in the middle <laughs> and that's okay. But a lot of them are towards the right as well and are deeply, deeply skeptical uh, of this. And I think Those it's good to regularly interact with with those people to get both one get out of the echo chamber, but also that they've raised lots of good, viable criticism to particularly on the valuation side of things. But it gets tough sometimes because you know, I'll have friends over and they'll be like, Why do you got this monkey on the wall? and I'm like, Well, first of all, you're missing the the culture, it's an ape. (laughs) Second of all, it's more coming from I think like now towards a point of like I missed out and I'm. Uh, a good chunk of them are, are are jealous of the the gains that people have experienced, but there's also a class of people that are more from the Warren Buffett side that you know don't really give a shit about the gains, and just have legitimate criticisms towards it, and, and I think that some of the valuations are in, inflated. But I would say I've got a couple of friends, particularly one of my uh, two of my you know best friends in the space that don't work at the same firm I'm at, but work at similarly you know I would say like competitive and and, and good places where super active in the community, and we, we've got our group chat and our own kind of online pseudonyms and go back and forth with each other on them. But I would say 95 to 99% of the people that I interact with that are investors are, are not onboarded and kind of reflect the general population of, you know, if you asked, took a poll of 100,000, you know, uh, Americans that are online, I would say probably only anywhere between one to, to 6,000 of them would, would actually be, you know, crypto native and, and NFT native. So... I think it just reflects kind of a, a sample of the the general population, which is interesting.
0: And I think also it's probably helpful for both you and I to have some sort of perspective on the fact that, at least in my opinion, and perhaps you agree, it's not like I believe every single NFT project is valuable and that everybody should just throw all their money into NFTs. Obviously, it's not financial advice. And I think sometimes... But at the same time, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Just because there are there are for real NFT scams. There are some really shitty projects that are not going to make you any money. They're just shitty. And there are, unfortunately, a lot of them, as is the case with any new industry. People want to come in and try to make money quickly. But the comp- the projects that do have value, which I believe there are quite a few of them, not all of them, but quite a few, are long-lasting cultural artifacts and community communities that might end up being strong forever. I, I can't predict the future but I definitely understand that not every single NFT project should be met with like optimism and belief in it doing well. But yeah, I would imagine do you feel similarly in that way? How do you like assess like what is worth your time or not? You know? Right. Like when I'm, you know,
1: flipping NFTs, there's a class of momentum in the sense of that is pure greater fool theory of I don't have a view on this project of at all. My my goal here is to to find someone that is going to pay more for this than I just paid for it. And that's more on the flipping side. And, you know, my, kind of my philosophy with, with those types of, of, of flips is, you know, if you look at stocks from 1900 to today, 97% of them are, are no longer tradable. Over a 30-year horizon, actually, 97% of them actually go to zero. And yet, if you just were putting your money in the S&P 500 every year, you're doing a lot better than if you kept it in a bank account, you're doing about 30x better over that period from 1900 today, because of the 3% that actually make it and succeed. And NFTs are, you know, just like in that we're thinking of them as an asset class, they're behaving kind of in this timeless and, and, and universal way of all assets in that you're, you're going to make your money from risky assets from the ones that do succeed because they succeed and are so far up to the right tail in terms of the scale and the success that they have. That if you go and buy out a portfolio of NFTs, it's basically gonna be the apes, of the the punks, and the things that are cultural artifacts that are gonna be the things that generate your return. And and probably somewhere between 97 to 99% of them over the long run are gonna to go to zero. And I think you can both have that expectation that most of these things are not gonna work. And at the same time, believe that that the space itself is gonna grow and be successful because it's gonna be the winners and the ones that are at the top that are gonna kinda of, kinda of drive the value of the culture in that way. So yes, I, I do agree with you that it's healthy and, and it's good that you got to step back and take like, you know, not financial advice, but, but most of these are probably going to zero. And yet at the same time, you know, if there's 10,000 projects, like, you know, there is room for 100 to 500 of them to be long lasting and, and culturally impactful and drive their value from, from that. Like, I think, uh, you know, after just seeing the, the community that's built around the, the apes, for example, like, I don't think that's going anywhere for the next 10 to 20 years. And because of that, it's going to have its own like, kind of long-lasting imprint on just broader culture as a whole. That's going to be quite valuable IP and, you know, to own a share of that going forward.
0: Maybe this is a good time for me to ask you, like, are there certain NFTs or projects or communities that you're most excited about that, whether you're personally involved in them or just an observer, what kind of stuff is getting you excited when it comes to NFTs? And maybe just you could also broaden that to just topics in the NFT space that you think are exciting as well. I think. You know, a, a lot of people spend a good time talking
1: about the, the cultural impact and, and those cultural NFTs like the apes and the crypto punks. And I think those are, you know, good things going, going good, you know, investments and going forward. Not investment, sorry, not financial advice. Those would be good things to, to own going forward. But those aren't really the types of projects anymore that are, you know, getting me excited to to get up in the morning, to get on this podcast. It's the uh, the kind of the gaming metaverse type projects. And projects that are treating themselves more as as portfolios of, of intellectual property, that those types of projects are are really the things that are I think have the most promise and have the highest ability to really onboard a lot of what we call like the, the normies or the normal type people who don't have a lot of experience with NFTs. There's a lot of gamers, there are a lot of people that are online every day, and yet there's very few under, you know, I would say hundred thousand people that are that are online at any given point in time in like Decentraland, for example, think we we're talking about earlier. But, you know, at its peak, there are 15 million people playing World of Warcraft. And there's, you know, 5 million people playing Warzone at any point in time. And the kind of gaming metaverse type projects are the things that are really getting me excited.
0: So maybe, could you frame that in a certain way? Because like, when I think about gaming metaverse, I think about, and let me know if I'm interpreting this correctly, like, kind of three layers, or I guess, coalescing, the Venn diagram of what gaming slash metaverse means to me is one, Play to earn games, which is like a category of games as in best popularized by like Axie Infinity, where people can have characters or items that they can earn that are in the form of NFTs and actually like people are making money from them. It's a whole new like business model around gaming people can't reward for that. Two, I think about gaming metaverses, meaning like sandbox, decentraland, which are like blockchain open worlds where people might have like a character. It's kind of like a Minecraft on blockchain or like every block is like an NFT so you can make money by buy, selling and trading them. And then the third thing I think about is NFTs being applied to mainstream gaming. So you think about the fact that Ubisoft just announced that they're going to have in-game NFTs, which if you imagine every... And Ubisoft is one of the biggest game publishers. They created Ghost Recon and Far Cry, I think a few others. But if you think about that, that's the most analogous to your Warcraft example because if you are if you actually own the items in World of Warcraft in the form of an nft that can become maybe transposed to other games as well or just there's this like intrinsic value in actually owning them, I think all those things to me are what I think about when I think about gaming slash metaverse slash nfts is would you say that framework is the same as what you're thinking about or how would you describe it? yeah, I think that's a
1: very succinct and and clean way to to express express how I, i'm I'm viewing that kind of intersection as well there's there's those three types of of uh, I would say like broad categories and unions between them, and then there's obviously subgroups under that. Like in the play to earn, there's this new game that, that came out called you know DeFi Kingdoms, which is
0: how does that work? What what is DeFi Kingdoms? So here? I think
1: the appeal to DeFi Kingdoms is that a lot of people played RuneScape uh, growing up, which was like this you know pretty shitty graphics browser game that was like a you know two D. Fairly 3D, MMO, not nearly with the same graphics quality as Warcraft, but had this very active, diverse cross-world, and in, in the sense that in World of Warcraft, you couldn't trade outside of your server of 2,000 people, but in RuneScape, you could trade amongst all the, you know, at its peak, it had about 10 million unique players. You could trade amongst all of those 10 10 million unique people, so it had this vibrant in-game economy and a vibrant, you know, out-of-the-game economy and that people were buying and selling gold. And DeFi Kingdom's is basically saying, okay, you know, it's got the same type of graphics, same type of feel of game, and now all the items are suddenly tradable, and you can actually like, you know, take the characters and you know stake them to earn earn more money. You can take the the, the you know currency jewel that's in the game and and actually use that to apply you know like bond it with certain p- protocols and and actually get like real DeFi type returns from their in-game currency. So that's kind of what I mean from a like subcomponent of play to earn of uh, there's like such possibilities. Like imagine if like, you know, you were playing World of Warcraft, you could have taken your gold out, put it in your actual online wallet and start lending it out to people and getting a return on it. It's really crazy. It's it's some people think it's kind of dystopic. And I think it's like a you know really eye-opening thing of you could think of it as like a, you know, that Steven Spielberg movie, like Ready Player One of like your life is your online virtual game. Or you could kind of think of it as here's this thing that I'm spending a lot of time on. And now I can actually go out and get a return from it because other people are also spending a lot of time there. And we as humans value our time. So why, are, why am I not getting you know, any real you know, monetary or investment type application from this thing that I'm spending eight hours a day doing? So I think it's, it's, it's really cool. Uh, and it's going to open a lot of doors in that sense. And then on the other two buckets you're talking about, you know, more from the gaming metaverse type, like immersive experiences, like that's going to be uh, a really cool thing of like, you know, you could go over to my plot of land at Decentraland that I still own and like go hang out there. Like I got a friend who, online friend, who bought one of those uh, virtual islands in the sandbox. Um, and for those people you, who don't know, it's a, it's a company called Fantasy Islands that uh, they're literally just buying plots of land in, in this game sandbox, which is like this, the central land that we're talking about. And these plots of land are like some of the most exclusive Lands in the game where you can only get there by in game boat, and it's these like islands that look like the kind of uh islands of the world in Dubai, these like palm islands where you got like these huge, expansive mansions, you've got the boats that you have to dock in your little harbor to get there. And it's like we're talking in one of the discords that I'm in with this guy who has this plot of land of like planning these descent, like these like virtual parties over there at his his island when it opens up, and it's like man that, <laughs> there are people who are genuinely like me excited to you know hang out with their virtual characters in this awesome exclusive scarce environment there's only you know i think 100 of these islands in, in the sandbox and only about 50,000 plots of land total and like that is just like you know inconceivable to me like people used to say they'd want to hang out in, in world of warcraft like hang out like one of the main cities but like anyone could do that but like not everyone could just go hang out at one, at one of the fantasy islands and you know, the floor, I think, as of this morning, <laughs> for one of those islands is like 90 Ethereum. So people, there's obviously
0: a market for it, which is crazy. How do you think that will evolve? Because I think like what we're, like you mentioned Ready Player One, and that's like a construct people use to conceptualize what this world might be. And I think this goes beyond just NFTs and just like the upper, overall topic of the metaverse. And right now, like what, what I'm seeing is the topic of the metaverse is becoming such a hot topic within all industries, like all, like Coca Cola is thinking, "What's our metaverse strategy?" Right? I mean, Facebook's rebranded to Meta. Pepsi is just launching an NFT today. Actually, oh really? Okay, yeah, well, classic, classic. Right, and, and exactly. The thing is, right, like, like metaverses are not like NFTs are a part of the the top the, the concept of the metaverse, but also not the only topic within the concept of the metaverse. And we're also seeing, you know, I, I'd imagine any pitch deck these days sent to VCs with the word metaverse on it will also just get like a a big bump uh, in valuation or, or money raised. Yeah, it's the buzzword right now. Yeah, like what's your take on this metaverse buzzword, and and what does that mean to you? I guess, and I guess the answer is the life you're living. But yeah, like what does that mean to you right now? So I think of like the
1: the metaverse as metaverse is, like you're saying, which I uh, I think that's a, a good astute observation of. Like the, there is no one metaverse. There's going to be these collections of metaverses. And what the metaverse is, it's like this, uh, you know, it's going to be basically just starts at its core of an online community. And it's a way to interact uh, online with people. And the way that we t- tend to visualize the metaverse is like a fully immersive type online interaction of, if I take a community that's in a Discord, like the the you know metaverse type application is going to be like having a more audio-visual way to to interact with those people, I think that's how uh, unfortunately the Meta platform is is also seeing it. And I think the way that the NFTs plug into it is, you know, we already have these types of things that you could you know, really consider as metaverses, like World of Warcraft is a good example of like an online immersive type experience where you happen to be playing a game, but you have a character and an identity that you associate with and and can interact with other characters and identities in this uh, environment online. And you know, I think what NFTs do to plug into this is, if I'm gonna be having this online you know, community and, and kind of platform where I'm interacting with people, that I should be able to really control and own my own and have sovereignty over my identity that I'm going to have there, in the sense that if I'm, I might not own the game and I might not own the platform, But I can at least have it be verified that I'm the owner of the character. So, you know, I think one of the cool things with the artifacts and the the clone vials that we were talking about is that like that character is going to be unique and that's going to be verified that it's like mine and that. And because I could do that and I can, you know, basically say that I own this 3D file that, you know, eventually I'm going to be able to transport that same identity and that same character that's you know, really gonna be yours and take it across all of these different metaverses and and be able to, you know, drop into the sandbox with with an artifact character and then go over to my, you know, friend's house and Fancy Island and then maybe end up uh, you know going to the Travis Scott concert in in Decentraland. And when you can really prove that you own something, then you can start to abstract value to it in the sense of like an identity type way. And then that said NFT will then you know basically become your online identity and be fungible and moldable. And it's not fungible and moldable, but at least moldable to you know, your own desires. And, and you, know, you see it in the 2D type sense now of like all of these people change their profile pictures to port apes and that's become their identity. And I think that's like, you've really only scratched the surface of that, of like Twitter profile pictures is not where this ends. It ends with when we're you know, interacting with each other in the sandbox or in the central or whatever's going to come next. And that, character that you have, that avatar, is really your identity. And you could prove that it is your your identity uh, because it is an NFT. So that's what I think of, of metaverses in the NFT intersection. I think it's a uh, an expression of identity and, and really being able to have sovereignty over that identity on the internet in these communities.
0: Yeah. No, that's, it's in some ways, it's a jarring picture of the future, either positively or negatively, based on, like, who you are in terms of, like, how you view this stuff. I am a delusional optimist. So I always think things are going to be better, but I can understand that this, what we're talking about here is pretty much at the frontier of like technology and society and culture and finance. So I appreciate you like getting deep into this kind of stuff because it's pretty crazy, but it is worth discussing. It's crazy stuff. Yeah. It's, it's
1: really, I think the forefront of, of technology and and society, like, I think there's some optimists in the the you know NFT crypto community that are like, oh, we're using the you know most high tech stuff, and it's like no, like if you go down to its core, like the uh, you know what is going on right now in the NFT space is is it, not super high tech. It's it, it's not. It's just a different application of technology that's already existed out there. But it's high tech in the sense that it's at this unique intersection of technology's role in society, and that's really where the high tech implication comes from. Like you could have. You know, even just take Ethereum example, you could have had NFTs on on Ethereum the same sets you have now. Back in twenty seventeen, the last the last bubble when the seven twenty ones were first launched, the technology has been there. But it's this application of how the technology is interacting with society is what makes it so you know different and powerful. And I like how you're saying it's at the you know forefront of technology and and society. You could have. Even outside of NFTs, you could have had a way to verify that I own this picture of a board ape without the blockchain. It wouldn't have been decentralized and permissionless, but the technology was there with you know digital signatures and whatnot to say like, okay, I have the ownership of this object. But what's going on now is it's not that the you know verified kind of ownership. That technology is not what's you know really bringing this thing forward and and showing the interesting application you know, intersection between technology and society. It's the it's the fact that, you know, not only do I own this thing, I can verify that I own this uh, you know, ape. It's it's I own all of the IP and and it's it's well known and codified in the contract and also just in the interaction with, with Yuga Labs, which is who's created the apes, that I'm gonna own all of the intellectual property that's associated with this ape going forward. And now you know, given that that is so clear, that's how you see someone like Timbaland going out and basically recreating the gorillas with four, four apes, because they have, which is amazing. I, I had a feeling that that was going to come up, that there would be like an NFT band. I would say, given the success of the gorillas, I just didn't think it would happen over the last month. And I'm not really elucidating this point very, very clearly, but it, it, it's really more the interaction with the technology and the society that makes this stuff cool.
0: It's an incredibly fascinating time for us to be deep in this stuff. I mean, we're, as we're kind of running out of time here, I mean, I'd love to, uh, before we close, I mean, are there any other things that are just kind of on your chest or things that get you so hyped right now, things that you're that you're even just pondering that even if you want to share it into the microphone, just to like get, get off your chest and anything that's on your mind?
1: Well, there's one project that I'm deeply, deeply involved in and and, and it has this potential of. You know, it doesn't have the greatest tech, but it has uh, the connection to society in the sense that, that that gets me really excited. It's called Pixel Vault, and it's a uh, you know Meta Heroes project that we were talking about before we got on the podcast. And it you know isn't the most technologically advanced project, but the vision and the vision so far that's been executed is it, it's you know basically I think revolutionary in the sense of the way that we describe it is it's basically take Marvel because these are a series of of like you know, superhero type characters. You know, it's like, what if you had Marvel and it was fully owned by the community in the sense that you take Spider-Man, for example, in this pixel vault type project, if you had one of those core type heroes and characters, it's like you would own Spider-Man. So like your, your PFP type or you know, profile picture on on Twitter would be Spider-Man. And on the blockchain, it would say that you own Spider-Ch- Spider-Man um, and then you would get all the, you know, basically royalties and if Spider-Man was used in, in movies like he has been, because you own the actual very concept of Spider-Man, you could, you know, extract the royalties of it. You could, online identity could be Spider-Man. If Spider-Man is a movie, you're going to be getting, you know, the payment type deal of like using the concept of, of Spider-Man. And that's kind of the surface of what Pixel Vault's trying to do. It's got a, a game that uh, those heroes are also going to be interacting in. So, you know, you're going to be actually able to, use your character in a game in a metaverse type environment and actually like you know, interact with other heroes in this game and on top of that also each kind of planet within the game has its own DAO and structure and voting and how they want to you know for example sell land or how does the bank like what interest rates does a bank want to set inside of the game so it's like yeah 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 it is pretty crazy uh, and i could probably spend another hour talking about uh how cool uh this project is but it's got pretty much all the intersections of of DeFi, um, you know, IP on chain and decentralized ownership and community led change. Like I'm not a, a team member on this project, but you know, I talked to G Funk, who's this he's now a docs like you know, CEO of the actual LLC that starts this. Like he says it's a community-led project and and that's what he's often his pitches, that it really is like that. Like I've no role there other than owning a share of the DAO that that oversees it. And I still like, talk to him, I feel like, once a week, giving suggestions, and other people are doing that. So it's still got that decentralized type of vibe and character to it. But it really has uh, pretty much all of the things that I've talked about on this uh, podcast so far, DeFi, gaming, and, and Metaverse. It's got all of that all kind of wrapped up into one. So for those that are listening, I would go and check it out. It's called uh, Metahero Generative Identities on OpenSea, uh, on punkscomic.com is the website. It's quite confusing, and you probably need a whole other hour podcast to kind of explain all the intricacies to it. But it's pretty cool, pretty cool project for people to, to check out. It's got a way lower barrier to entry than some of the other, you know, tier one blue chips out there too.
0: That sounds beautiful, and also what sounds beautiful to me as well is the fact that I think you've kind of volunteered to come on the podcast again to get deeper and deeper as time goes on. So, <laughs> yeah. at least for a second appearance, maybe third, maybe it's a regular thing. Maybe we do. Weekly, Bobby Axelrod, his take on the world. Monthly, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I you know I would love
1: love to do that. But, uh, maybe I'll be a a little more succinct in my answers next time. As I get the hang of this.
0: <laughs> we'll add you to the family, the New Street family. Here, we're getting close to the time here. But before I do, I always ask people like the same kind of two questions here. Like one, where where can people find you or find things that you're involved with that you're interested in, and two, any like last messages to leave the audience.
1: Sure. So you can follow me on uh, Twitter. Unfortunately, the Bobby Axelrod name was, was taken, which is not surprising. But it's uh, at uh, Meister, which is my uh, World of Warcraft username, actually. It's S-A-E-D-M-Y-S-T-E-R. That's my at. Got an interesting mix of, of NFT takes, global macroeconomics, and uh, just general riffs on uh, sports, which pretty much sums up the, all the three things we touched up on the podcast. I guess the last message I, I have is that uh, people that aren't involved in, in the space and are scared that it's too late. I don't want to kind of be beating on deaf ears here, but I think it's still incredibly early. And I think as the you know, time goes on over the next couple of months, I think the barrier to entry is gonna to continue to come down, especially with, you know, Coinbase entering the NFT market in January. And I think that's gonna you know, like Topshot did for a lot of people at the beginning of the year in terms of being a low barrier to entry, I think. There's going to be and continue to be opportunities to get involved in, in great projects at much lower costs than, than they are right now because that's one of the main problems that I have with the space so far is the thing we were talking about like the the barrier to entry is just so high like if you want to get a clone X file it's going to cost sixteen thousand dollars but I think there are going to be great opportunities and uh, if you follow me on Twitter I'll be uh, you know commentating commentating on those probably you know over the next couple of months as I see things that that's one another thing that. Really attracts me uh, is if a project has a low barrier to entry and is you know actually feasible economically for for people that haven't been involved in the space over the last couple of years and don't have that built up capital from just how much crypto is appreciated. Those projects are are, are really exciting. I think there's going to be more and more of those coming out over the next year.
0: Really appreciate you giving your take on all these like the wide ranging topics we talked about, which has been wonderful. No, thank you, Tony. Thanks for thanks for having me on, and uh, I look
1: forward to being a little bit uh, more succinct in my next appearance when we come back
0: we got plenty of time to get ready for that one so it'll be great thanks for listening to new street x you can learn more about bobby axelrod in the show notes and learn more about new street at newstreet.com make sure you like follow and subscribe